Hello, New Hope Church. Thanks, guys. Your friend Shane Willard here. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come into your homes today. I get the opportunity today to open the Bible, and I love that. I, I take that very seriously. And so anytime I preach, I want a couple things to happen for us. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger not smaller. I want you walking away asking more questions about God, not less. I want you taking your next step and saying your next yes. And so I I, I have a a thought this morning. I want to start with a story from my life. And and I'm hoping that you'll identify with this story uh, because I think it's common to to most of us. Uh, when, When I was a kid, I was kept, um, before I started school, by my grandmother. My grandmother was an amazing lady, uh, a t- fully devoted follower of Jesus, um, you know, old-timey Pentecostal holiness sort of person, and, but a very kind person, a loving person. And, and she, she told me something that was then reinforced in other areas of my spiritual development, which, is, which sounded something like this. And, and tell, me, tell me if you identify with this at all. A. Shane, just because I can't see everything you do doesn't mean God doesn't see everything you do. Now, now most things that are compelling have a lot of truth to them. Something that's 100% a lie, not compelling. But things that affect us have a lot of truth mixed in with something that's not quite right. Because here was the imagery that was taught to me. Shane, picture it this way. Above your head... There's a credit side and a debit side. And God sees everything you do. And he's keeping track. The good things you do are in credit. The bad things you do are in debit. And when you face Jesus one day, you better be in credit. But at the same time, they would say something like, but remember, Jesus died for you and forgave your sins. Well, those two things don't make a lot of sense when put together. And and just like Just like all things that affect us, they have a lot of truth to it. So let's talk about the truth in that statement. Does God see everything? Yes, he does. Does God know everything? Yes, he does. Is it important for us to stay aware that God is with me everywhere I go? Everything I do, everything I say, God is in the middle of that. That is so important that we keep that in our consciousness, that we are aware that God is with us always, that we can't organize our life in such a way where God is here but not there. Because if I lose my God awareness, I might justify treating someone poorly. I might treat the waitress at the restaurant a bit more poor than I would if I realized Jesus with me. I might talk to my spouse a bit differently if I lose my awareness that God is with me. But here's the problem, and this is what happened to me, and maybe this was true of you. If all we ever heard was that God sees everything, God knows everything, if that's all we ever heard with no consciousness at all, that in his love and in his consent, he chooses to forget. So, so some of the, the, the great metaphors in scripture is he'll throw your sins as far as the east is from the west. Well, that's far. Or, or, or into the sea of forgetfulness, a great metaphor, right? So I want to read a, a line from a famous passage of Scripture. It's, it, if you're the type that likes to look at it in the actual Bible, maybe highlight it or something, it's in, it's in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It, it's the famous love passage. It's, it's the passage that we heard at every wedding we've ever went to, ever. And it talks about the attributes of love. And Paul is struggling, it seems, 
to nail love down. Why? Because love is not something that has one meaning. Love is something that renders all things meaningful. And that, that's two different things. Um, with love, you can't help but experience your world as meaningful. Without it, you can have everything. And you can't help but experience your world as meaningless. Because love is not that which has one meaning. Love is that which renders all things meaningful. And so he starts listing things like love is patient, love is kind, love is not proud, love does not envy. And I, in my mind, I can picture Paul going, yeah, love is patient, yes, but that's not enough. Kind, yep, that's not, it's more than that. It's not proud, it's not boastful. And so he gives this whole list. And, and in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, um, here's what he says. Love keeps no record of wrong. So I want to stop and I want to let that settle in. So wherever you're watching right now, I want you to stop and take a deep breath. And I want us to meditate on that passage just for a second. That love keeps no record of wrong. So if you grew up knowing God knew everything and God sees everything, and there's a credit side and a debit side, and man, he's keeping track. And you better be in credit. If that's all you ever heard, without ever losing the truth that we should stay God aware in everything we do, that God is with us. May we also realize that in his love and in his consent, he chooses to forget and keep no record of wrongs. That one of the primary definitions in the scripture of what God is, is God is love. So if God is love and love keeps no record of wrongs, then God keeps no record of wrong. So is it true that he sees everything? Yeah. But it's also true that he's not holding your debit side against you. Maybe we could say this a few different ways, that love keeps no record of wrongs. Or maybe we could say it this way, God keeps no record of wrongs. Or, or maybe we could say it another way, love doesn't keep score. That love doesn't keep tabs on the score. Now, there are things in our life, and scorekeeping is built into the fabric of our life. And so it's natural. As the great G.K. Beale said it, he said, we become what we worship. Because here's the problem. If we believe that God keeps score, then we'll justify scorekeeping in our life. And the divine, profound opportunity to be in loving relationships with our fellow man can get dumbed down to scorekeeping. Who's ahead? Who's behind? Who's, who's grossly behind? And so, so there, there's people who keep score. And actually, I think if we're honest, scorekeeping is built into the fabric of some of our default buttons. This is why. When somebody does something that really has no scorekeeping to it, it's confronting. Let, let me give you an example. Let's, let's say... Let's say that, that you and I were at a restaurant and we finished our meal and our conversation and we go to the cashier to pay. And the manager of the restaurant says, it's okay, all good, somebody else took care of your bill. Well, well think, about, think about what our initial response would be. We'd start looking around, we'd go, who, where, who are they? I need to get them next time. That, I need to make sure that if they got me this time, I get them next time. That's Scorekeeping. Because when somebody does something that truly doesn't have any expectation of return at all, it actually really confronts us. It is confronting to our default scorekeeping mechanism. So, so there's a few things in our life that keep score. Fear keeps score. Like when we're afraid, we can count the things that we should be 
afraid of. Maybe in this COVID-19 season, you've experienced an inordinate amount of fear about it. Maybe you're the person who wakes up every morning and checks the new graph, the new numbers to see what the new uh, thing is. And and fear, fear keeps score. Fear keeps score relationally. When we're afraid that someone might reject us, we start counting the things that they've done with this, 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 and this. Sometimes we get so afraid of it that we create a scenario by which they will reject us so that we can prove ourselves right. Fear keeps score. Anxiety keeps score. When we're worried about something, that that will create scorekeeping in our life. I, I tell you what else keeps score. It's anger. Anger keeps score. When we are bent on revenge and payback, think, think about some of our language around scorekeeping with that. Like, I'm going to get you back. That's scorekeeping. I'm not going to stop till I'm one up. Scorekeeping. Well, you better, you better make that right. Scorekeeping, right? Anger keeps score. Maybe we can summarize it this way. Unhappy people keep score. Truly, when we believe God keeps score, we create a culture and an ethos of scorekeeping. And once we create that ethos of scorekeeping, we create an unhappy existence. Because when life gets dumbed down to a score, there's no way that someone's not ahead There's no way that someone's not behind. There's no way that some people aren't hopelessly behind. And so I'd like to talk to you today about that. And what do we do about that? And and I want us to be inspired uh, by a particular Bible story. Think about what life might be like if we remove the scorekeeping. Like if we just said yes to the divine opportunity to be in a loving relationship where we did things for others just because... It was the right thing to do. Like, like what, if, what if you needed a ride at 4 a.m. to the airport? And so you call your friend and say, look, I've got a kid. If, if I have to do this, it's just, would you give me a ride to the airport at 4 a.m.? And let's say that friend says, sure. And let's say that friend says, sure, with no expectation of return at all. That's beautiful. But if that friend says, sure, only to log it in their mind. Next time I need a favor, I'm going to call in that favor. Then we've missed the opportunity to live lovingly towards the other at the expense of a scorekeeping thing. Let's say you're married. If if your marriage has been dumbed down to just a score, like like if, if a lady makes her husband collect points, that he can later cash in for something he wants. And, and think about our language around this. Like, like think about like how many times we go, you might hear someone go, I don't want to do this, but boy, this will give me points with the wife. Or I don't want to do this, but boy, this will give me points with him. And you know what? I owe him a bit because he's got some points, right? So the divine, awesome privilege of living in a loving relationship gets dumbed down to who's ahead, who's behind, who's hopelessly behind, who could ever do that? And there's a There's a great story in the Old Testament. It takes, it's quite a long story to read. So I'm just going to tell the story, but I think it illustrates this well about what happens when we resist the urge to scorekeep and rather live in love. When we submit our ethic of freedom and liberty to a higher ethic of love. Because sometimes people might go, if you knew what they did, you would know I'm free to act how I want to act toward them. Yes, Yes, you are. But freedom is best expressed when it's submitted to a higher ethic of love. Let me illustrate this with the story of a guy named Joseph. Here's the basics of the story. There was a guy named Abraham who had a son named Isaac 
who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 children. Well, 12 sons. We don't know how many daughters he had. We know he had 12 sons. And 11 of those 12 sons sell one of their brothers into slavery in Egypt. And and the truth of it is, is there was a lot of dysfunctional family stuff going on there. The dad had 11, I'm sorry, had 12 sons and he preferred one over the other 11, right? That's not good. That's bad parenting. He did things like buy him gifts that he didn't buy anybody else, namely a big coat of many colors, right? And let's just be honest, Joseph doesn't help his cause at all. He, he has dreams and visions from God, and instead of holding some of those to himself, he calls family meetings, and he, in his dream, he has this dream where these sheaths are bowing to him. And he says, hey guys, I've had a vision from God, and in my vision, I'm standing and you're bowing. Well, this doesn't go well. Why? Because no one likes a vision where you're standing and they're bowing. Listen, if you ever have a vision from God, if you ever have a dream where other people are bowing to you, I would first ask you to consider, what did I have to eat that night? Second, even if it is from God, some visions from God are meant to be held onto and not displayed in public, particularly to the people who you think are going to be bowing. So they they set out to kill him. Well, the oldest brother, a guy named Reuben, talks him out of killing him and says, let's just sell him into slavery. And he ends up in charge of a guy named Potiphar's house in Egypt. And in charge of that, He's evidently pretty sharp and great with systems and things like that. And Potiphar's pretty impressed. But he gets falsely accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife and ends up in jail. Now, if you're keeping score right now, how many wrongs does Joseph have to make right? Brothers wanting to kill him. Brothers selling him into slavery. Tricking the father into thinking he was dead by dipping the coat into blood. A a false sexual assault accusation. He, He ends up in prison and he befriends these prisoners. And he helps them. And he says, the only thing I ask is that if you're ever out of here and get in Pharaoh's good graces, would you remember me? And of course, they promise to remember him. And then, of course, they get into Pharaoh's good graces and then they forget about him. So if you're, if you're a scorekeeper, th- think about the things that, that could be revenged, could be made right. Brothers that try to kill you, then they sell you. Trick your father into thinking you're dead so he won't look for you. A false sexual assault allegation, Um, years in prison. I think this story takes 22 years from start to finish. It's a long time. Uh, He helps the prisoners who promise to remember him, and then they don't. There's a lot of people Joseph could be getting even with. Well, one thing leads to another, and he ends up in Pharaoh's good graces himself. And he ends up making a plan to try to get Egypt through a famine. Well, turns out the same famine hit Israel. And so his family need him. Because here's what happens. They hear that Egypt has food stored up and that Egypt can save their life. But they don't know that the guy in charge of the food is the guy they sold years ago. So you can see where this story is culminating. And the story culminates in a room with a table. And the story gets more complicated because in the process, the father dies. So almost every motivation Joseph would have to be kind, is now dead. And the thing culminates at a table. And and if you remember, the word table in Hebrew is shulkan. The word meal is shul. And so the whole thing centers around a table. The word shulkan also means reconciliation. So if you could picture this in here, this, this is how I imagine it to be. That the people who sold Joseph are sitting at the table. And finally, here's what's happened. Joseph has the political power and the clout 
to get even or revenge and one-up everybody. The prisoners who are supposed to remember him, he can get them. Potiphar, he can get him. Potiphar's wife, he can get her. The 11 people who sold him into slavery, he can get them. And Joseph has a choice he can make. Do I keep score as a pattern in my life? Or do I live something more profound than that and live in love? And the way I picture it is the 11 guys are sitting around the table and, and the Egyptian army standing behind them waiting on one of two signals. Serve the food and make it right or kill them. And it says Joseph goes outside and weeps. And I can't imagine the emotion of the 11 brothers knowing their life was in this guy's hand and they can hear him crying. And, and then he comes back and he says three words. Serve the food. In that one moment, he chose to not keep score and live in a higher ethic of love instead of using his freedom to hurt people, which was well within his right. These people did him bad. And if he was a scorekeeper, the debit ledger for them would have taken a lot of credit ledger to make it right. Or he could just take it in his own hands. He has the power now, but he chooses to do something frankly beautiful. And that is to submit his liberty to the higher ethic of love. What does that look like? He chooses not to keep score. And he says, serve the food, serve the meal. I want to read this passage to you. This is in um, Genesis chapter 50. And I think hearing Joseph's rationale on it might help us. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, you, you have debits, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as to have happened. So don't fear. Like, don't be afraid of what I might do to you. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In other words, I'm not going to keep score here. I'm not going to take revenge. Not only that, I don't want you to be afraid. Not only that, I'm going to feed you. Not only that, I'm going to feed your children. My nephews and nieces, they're going to be good too. And I don't know the details because it doesn't say the details, but it says he comforted and spoke kindly to them. Now, how can we be inspired by this? Because when we open the scripture, we want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So let's look at this and see how we might apply this to our life. See, Joseph prioritizes love, which allows brothers not to be afraid. He submits his freedom, liberty to a higher, more ethic of love. How does he do this? He frames his place in God's. In other words, if there's somebody that needs to get even, I'm going to leave that in God's pay grade. It's above my pay grade. I'm not doing that. I'm going to leave that at God's. Number two, Joseph chooses a perspective of gratitude. He says, hey, what you did, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And he took a second and stepped back and started counting the good things in his life. What if we did that? Instead of focusing on everything they owe us, what if we stepped back and counted the good things in our life right now because of it? But let's say it this way. Joseph honors the position of grace. H how does he do that? He saw the potential for grace in the situation he found himself in. Because scorekeeping stops when we step above it and see the bigger goal to rescue, restore, and reconcile. 
once we see the bigger goal that God is pulling the whole thing into unison, um, scorekeeping can take a back seat. Um, when he says serve the food, we take the potential for unity and see it realized. But if he'd have been a scorekeeping, you would see a potential for uni unity be dumbed down to us and them and the other, and it's all their fault, and they owe us. I, I think a couple things for us. Scorekeeping cheapens the relationship into a competition. So if it's a neighborly relationship, a work relationship, a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, whatever the case may be, if we say no to the divine privilege of living in a loving relationship where we meet the other person's need, not because they deserve it and not because of what they can do back for us, but because we declare them worth it. Well, that's beautiful. But if we don't and we let that be defined as just another scorekeeping thing, it cheapens it. See, when we keep score, we start to believe that God keeps score. And that's a problem. And I'll even say it the other way is true as well. When we believe God keeps score, we'll justify keeping score ourselves. See, if God keeps score, then the whole beautiful, holy, divine life inside of us simply gets dumbed down to a score. And here's the problem with that. Some people are ahead of the score. And you look at their life and go, man, if that's what it takes to be in good standing with God, I'd never catch up. They're, they're way ahead of the score. Some people are behind the score. So when we look left and right instead of up and in to get our value, some people are way ahead. Some people are way behind. And we compare ourselves that way. And you know what? Some people are hopelessly behind. We look at their life. And I want to speak to you right now. If you're one of those people who have felt, you know what? If God sees everything that I've done, man, I'm hopelessly behind the score. I'll never catch up. Can never be. I want to speak to you for a second. And I want to tell you there's good news. And the good news is, is that God did see everything you did. And for you to live the best life, I want you to be God aware in your day-to-day -day life. But the other side of that is that God in His love and in His consent has, choose, has chosen to keep no record of wrongs. He's not keeping your score. If he brings up your credit side and your debit side, he only remembers the credit side. Can you imagine relating to a person who chooses to only bring up your good news? If that's you, I would say that the story might be better than what you've heard. And I'm so sorry for the story you were told. Whatever caused that image to make you feel hopelessly behind the score. And I would urge you to take your next step on that journey to relate to a God that doesn't keep score. Because the big problem is, is that the real danger in scorekeeping is that it violates the love of God as represented by the cross. That God is ultimately revealed in Christ on the cross. And if anything says God's not a scorekeeper, it's that. It's, think about the, think about the passion story. All the temptations of Christ at the cross was, use your freedom to act how you want because you're God in violation of love. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't keep score. Even the person mocking him, scourging him, lifting a dirty sponge to his face, the person whipping him, he chose to forgive. What would happen 
if we so profoundly connected to that life that we showed that to our world and our own relationships. So great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So a couple questions for us to wrestle. Jesus didn't die simply to fix a problem, but to destroy an entire framework of living by scorekeeping. See, see, the Jewish system had scorekeeping down pat. Hey, what did you do? You did that. Did you do it intentionally or unintentionally? Well, unintentionally. Well, you owe a bird. That'll make it right. But you did it intentionally. You'll owe a goat. That'll make it right. Jesus didn't die simply to fix the problem. He died to destroy the entire system of scorekeeping. So are we violating that in our marriage? Just think about if you're married, just think about that. Or in your relationships. Are we violating that somehow? Have we dumbed down the ethic of love to scorekeeping? Or are we feeling hopelessly behind the score? Maybe we could say it this way. Where do we need to remember that God keeps no record of wrongs? That God keeps no record of wrongs. So what I want to do right now is I want to reread 1 Corinthians 13. And because God is love, I'm going to replace the word love with the word God. And let's see how beautiful this makes God. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor other people. God is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrong. God keeps no record of wrong. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God always protects you, always trusts you, always hopes, and always perseveres. For God never fails. So my brothers and sisters of New Hope, may we have a more Christ-like image of God, a God that doesn't keep score. May we maintain our God awareness, but realize that in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrong. And for those of you who might be listening right now, I'd like to invite you to take your next step on a journey. Here at New Hope, we are here to if I could use a metaphor, cultivate the ground that allows people to respond to the seed that God plants in their heart. It's up to God to plant the seed. It's up to you to respond. And some people's next yes is different than others. But if you're ready to take your next step, whatever that next yes might be, we're here to help you. And so on the screen right now, a team member from New Hope will be inviting you to, if you'd like to say your next yes and be on the journey with us, we'd love for you to do that. Because I can tell you, could you imagine relating to a God who always submits his liberty to love and chooses to keep no record of wrongs? That would be beautiful. Thank you so much for letting me come into your house today and open the scripture. I hope it all got better. hope Jesus got bigger. Crosswork better, the resurrection central, scriptures got bigger, not smaller. May we apply this today by choosing something more profound than scorekeeping. Grace and peace.